It's good to see you tonight. I got a super long, super controversial sermon for you tonight. So I'm going to talk faster than I normally do. So pull the study outline out of your Bible and uh, strap yourselves in, put your seatbelt on, and we're going to dive right into it. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, if you have a Bible. Just the mention of that passage sends shivers up the spine of most pastors. In 25 years, I've never heard a sermon on the 1 Corinthians passage that we are tackling tonight, but this is where we're at in our sermon. I couldn't circumvent it. I couldn't avoid it. So we're going to dive right into it, and I hope you're ready for this. It's on gender roles, biblical gender roles. And every commentary I read on this passage said something like this. This is one of the thorniest, most controversial, hard-to-interpret-and-understand passages in the entire New Testament. (laughs) So I've already accepted in my heart that no matter what I say tonight, some of you will be ticked off at me, if not for the length of the sermon, then for the content of it. And if you send me nasty email messages, send them to jfireball at enewlife.com, okay? And uh, we'll make sure he answers those. Keep in mind that this is a 40 to 45-minute sermon, not a three-hour mini-seminar or a week-long class. So we will not be able to answer all of your questions on this topic. It's just not possible. You would miss the Buckeye game if we did that. So I don't want to do that you actually might end up having more questions at the end of this sermon than you have about it right now. And that's just the way it is. If it matters to you, if you'd like to learn more, I encourage you to do some self-study on this. There's some resources recommended in your worship folder. Also, there's a great website called the Council on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, cbmw.org, that I highly recommend. Those guys are very, very smart. And they line up where we do on these issues. Also, on our website, we've placed a link to a document that's really a position paper that our elders did four years ago on the subject of women's roles in leadership in the church. We formulated this back in 06, and it answers many of the practical questions that Christians have with regard to where women can serve and can lead in this congregation. So... I encourage you to check that out. There's a link on our website. Okay, so basically, as I understand this issue, just think in your mind of this spectrum of positions, okay? And on the far end uh, of the spectrum is radical feminism. That's a position that, that some people hold, radical feminism, which basically holds that women are superior to men. Men are idiots and fools. They've ruined the world, and we'd all be better off if women were in charge and running things. Because women are morally, intellectually, socially, and spiritually superior to men, as well as just being nicer and prettier. That is radical feminism. Then in a few steps from that, we might call egalitarianism. Anybody ever heard that word before? Egalitarianism, very common in our culture. This view holds that women and men are totally equal, both in essence and in function, And therefore, there should be no distinctions at all whatsoever in roles or functions. There's no authority between the sexes in the egalitarian view. They believe that's the way God designed it before the fall. Women, therefore, can do anything that men can do. And so there are no limitations put on functions and roles between genders. I was at a church a while back. And the pastor uh, was introducing his wife, who was going to speak that day. And the pastor, I was visiting there, and the pastor kind of scolded everybody and basically said, some of you are going to have a problem with the fact that my wife is preaching here today, and you're all hung up on biology and body parts, and God's hung up on gifts. And so there, deal with it. He was an egalitarian. Okay, that's that view. Further on up this spectrum, it would be called the complementarian view. And I'm realizing right now that I should have had a a thing up on the screen, right, for you to follow, and I should have had this all laid out, but I don't. So you can draw it out for yourself if you can spell these words. Complementarianism. Basically, this view holds that men and women are equal in essence, made of the same stuff, no one superior to the other, but God has designed the relationship to be a partnership that includes functional subordination that men were created to exercise loving leadership and lead in the relationship, and women were created to serve alongside their men as helpers and to follow their husband's leadership and submit to their authority. 
That is complementarianism, also a, a pretty popular view among evangelical Christians. On the far other end of the spectrum, so you've got radical feminism over here, exact opposite of that would be chauvinism, male chauvinism. Those who hold this view say men are superior to women in every way, and they can treat women however they want. Women should stay home and bake things and have babies and stay ignorant and not ask too many questions. And men should be able to rule the world and do it however they want and have sex with whoever they want. And women should shut up and submit or pay the price for failing to do so. Chauvinism. You say, what are you? Well, basically, I'm what you would call a soft complementarian. Say, what's that? Well, a hard complementarian would hold that women are equal with men in essence, but because they're subordinate in function, a woman should not hold any sort of leadership role in the church where men are involved. That's a hard complementarian. I'm a soft complementarian. That means this. I would contend that women can do a lot in the church and are oftentimes better at ministry than men. They can hold many leadership roles. They just cannot serve as the final human authorities in the local church, namely in the elder role and the functions that elders do, such as teaching the Bible authoritatively in a setting like this. So I'm a soft complementarian, but capable, gifted, godly, submissive women can do a lot of things in God's economy. They can serve on our staff, which we have a number of godly, capable women on our staff. They can lead ministries and groups. They can go on missions trips. And we have hundreds of such women here in our church at New Life, and we're blessed to have you. So, if I haven't offended you yet, let's keep going. With that as a backdrop, let's dive into our passage for tonight. 1 Corinthians 11, beginning with verse 2. Paul writes this, Now I commend you, because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. Huh? Paul, you've been skewering this church for ten chapters. What do you mean? What are you doing complimenting them here? Well, we'll come back to that. Verse 3. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Very controversial verse, but it's the principle that he's laying out. Everything else he's going to say flows from that. Verse 4, every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, but every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it's disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. Verse 7, for a man ought not cover his head since he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. Feminists love that verse. That is why, verse 10, a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels, whatever that means. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. You with him? Not so much, maybe, huh? Verse 13, judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? Some of us don't have that problem anymore. But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for her hair is given to her for a covering. And verse 16, if anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. Pretty self-explanatory, wouldn't you say? Let's pray. No, I'm serious. Let's pray. Lord, you are the Lord of the church. You wrote scripture through the hand of Paul. You are the head of this church. I pray you give us ears to hear tonight and help me, as I've asked you many times this week, help me to say the things you want me to say, not say the things you don't want me to say to be faithful, biblically faithful, to the text that you have given us. And may as a church we be submissive to our head, who is Jesus Christ. I pray in your name. Amen. This passage raises tons of questions. 
Loads of them. Like, how in the world can Paul praise this church in verse 2 for maintaining the traditions that he passed on to them? He's been correcting and rebuking them for this whole letter. What's that all about? What does the word head mean in verse 3? The head of the wife is the husband. The head of the man is Christ. What does that mean? What exactly was this head covering that Paul was referring to? Why did it seem to matter so much whether or not men and women prayed and prophesied with their head covering on? What's the deal with that? Was Paul okay with women praying and prophesying in the church? He alludes to that. In what sense is man the glory of God and woman the glory of man? What does Paul mean in verse 10 when he says a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head? Is that for today? Was that for then? Is this cultural? What's going on with that? And then he says because of the angels. What does that mean? What does the word nature mean in verse 14 when he says doesn't nature teach us that it's a shame for a man to have long hair? How long of hair is too long for men and how short of hair is too short for women? Is Paul talking about a woman's hair? being her covering, or is he referring to some other kind of head covering, like a a shawl or a veil of some sort? And then what in all of this is cultural, applying to that day and that culture and that city, and what is transcultural that applies to all times, all seasons, and would apply to us today? Lots and lots of questions. As we walk through the text tonight, I'll try to answer as many of them as I can, but I'm telling you right now, we are not going to get to all of them, and all your questions are not going to be answered. Since Paul takes his cues from the story of creation, let's start there. Let's go back to Genesis, and let's remind ourselves of what happened in Genesis 1 and 2, and then in chapter 3, that kind of sets the tone for all this, because that's where Paul goes when he's talking about gender relationships between men and women. Remember when it all started, that there was how many gods? One God. But that God exists in three persons, and we call him the Trinity, the Trinitarian God, three in one. And so in Genesis 1.26, we find God saying, let us make man in our own image. That's Trinitarian language, us and our, he says. In verse 27 of Genesis 1, it says, God created man in his image, and he created them male and female. So that tells us that both men and women are image bearers of God, image bearers of our our creator. And it tells us that gender differences are not just a product of cultural conditioning. They came from God. God created them male and female. Men and women are different by creation. Just today, I got sons, okay? I don't have any daughters. I was raised with two sisters, but I got three sons. One of my sons today is out in the woods with his friends shooting each other, and my wife, who's a woman, is in the kitchen making quiche. Men and women are different. You've probably experienced that in your family also. And then we find in Genesis that God created man first. He created Adam first, and then out of Adam, he created Eve, and that is significant. It's called the creation order. And the New Testament tells us that God did that for a reason. He meant something by it. He meant to signify something by it because God never does anything without a purpose. Can I say that again? God never does anything without a purpose. And so in creating Adam first and then Eve, Paul in the New Testament is telling us that God was placing the man in the role of headship, leadership, authority, and the woman in the role of of submissive partnership given to the man to help him. Genesis 1, the man needs a helper. It's not good for him to be alone. How many of you know a man who just needs help? Yeah, we do. And God saw that, and he crafted a beautiful being, a woman, out of man, brought brought her to the man to be his suitable companion, his helper, his partner, helping him carry out God's assignments and will on the earth. Woman, it's, it's worth noting, was taken out of man's side. Do you remember the story? Not from his head so that she could rule over him, and not from his backside so that he could squash her, but from his side so that she could come alongside him as a life's companion, a life's partner, and help him. 
When it was done, God looked at man and woman and the gender distinctions that he had created, Adam and Eve, and he stood back and he said, it is very good. It's good. And all of this was before sin entered the world. It was before the fall. That comes in Genesis 3. So when we look into Genesis 3, the fall of man occurs. And you know how it came about. The woman in the garden was deceived by the serpent. She sinned against God. While her husband, Adam, was there, sat by passively, not protecting her, not taking responsibility, not doing what husbands are designed to do, and then allowing Eve to lead him into sin as well. So what happened is that these divinely ordained roles got reversed. And the woman took the leadership and then led her passive husband into sin. Everything got crosswise from that point on, and gender wars have been normal ever since. God, of course, because it's in his nature, goes after the man and the woman in the garden. He seeks them out. He knew something had changed, and he finds them doing what? Hiding. (laughs) Hiding out. He, He confronts Adam, who fails to take responsibility for what's happened in his family, Instead, blaming God, the woman you gave me, and blaming his wife. And then God goes to the woman, and the woman says it was the serpent's fault. And so hiding and blame shifting have been taking place in gender relationships ever since the fall of man, up to and including this very day. Maybe it happened in your home today. I don't know. It's happened in my home this week, the result of sin. And so, as a result of our first parents, our first ancestors succumbing to sin, and sin infecting the human race, wives ever since have struggled to follow their husband's leadership. God predicted it in Genesis chapter 3. Their husband's leadership is imperfect at best. Wives often struggle to follow their husband's leadership, struggle to trust their husbands to take responsibility. And husbands have responded either Passively, timidly, cowardly, backing out, ceding the chair of leadership in the family to their very capable wife because they married up, or they meet strength with strength and they seek to dominate their wives and rule over their wives, treat them harshly, sometimes letting anger dictate how they relate to their wives. And out of that comes abuse and battered wives and all the ugly things that you find in our culture and marriage relationships, but it's all rooted back to what happened in the garden. And that's the Genesis story, and that's our story, isn't it? But now as we come to 1 Corinthians 11, Paul is talking to husbands and he's talking to wives who have been redeemed by Jesus Christ through his gospel. They've been brought into the body of Christ. And Paul is instructing them in how to cooperate with their creator who is seeking to restore them to the kind of relationship that he originally intended back in the garden. So that's where we're at. Let's try to understand verse 2 of chapter 11. Here's how he starts. Now I commend you. What does commend mean? Praise you. Doing good. Because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. There's four possibilities here. Number one, Paul is suffering from short-term memory loss. Could be. Number two, Paul is being sarcastic. Oh, yeah, you guys are doing great. (laughs) Number three, Paul knows he's going to skewer them in this chapter, and so he wants to soften them up a little bit first by giving them this glib compliment that he doesn't really mean. Or the word traditions there, I commend you for maintaining the traditions, could be translated doctrines or ordinances, and it could be that Paul is complimenting this church on holding fast to their doctrine. They got their doctrine right. It's just in living it out that they're struggling. And so now he intends to demonstrate how their beliefs should shape their conduct and their behavior. I think that's probably the most likely thing that's going on here. Guys, you have correct beliefs about God and things. Let me show you how that applies to gender relationships. See if we can extract some of the principles from this passage. First, verse 3, key verse. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. And that's a pregnant verse. There's a lot in there. 
Here's the principle. Our model for, for authority and submission in gender relationships is the Trinity. That's our model. That's who we need to look to. In other words, your theology matters. What you believe about God and who God is and how he relates with himself matters because Paul says we're going to go back to the Trinity to figure out how we should be relating to each other as male and female. Now, what do we know about the relationships of the Trinity? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Are they equal? Yes. Do they share the same attributes? Yes. Father, Son, and Spirit are all equally God. They share the same attributes. This is taught in Scripture. It was affirmed by the early church council. They are equal in essence. Theologians would say consubstantial, made of the same stuff, equally sharing in the divine nature. No debate there. There's equality in the Trinity. Is there authority and submission in the Trinity? What do you think? Yes. They are equal in essence, but there is authority and submission in the Trinity. A chain of command, if you want to think of it that way. We call this, or I should say theologians call this, throwing lots of big words at you tonight, functional subordination. Is the Son equal to the Father? Is he equally God? Yes. Is he subordinate to the Father? Yes. That's why Jesus on so many occasions said, I only say the things that the Father tells me to say. I came from the Father. He sent me. I always do those things that please him. I'm quoting Jesus right now. He said all these things. I came to do the Father's will. Not my will, but yours be done. This is Jesus voluntarily submissive to the Father. Equal in essence, subject to the Father in position. It's very important that we understand that when we come to understand gender roles in male and female relationships. Equal in essence, subordinate in position. He was not less than God. Remember, he said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I and the Father are one. Equal in essence, subordinate in position. The Holy Spirit appears as subject to both the Father and the Son. It says he proceeds from the Father and the Son. Get your Trinitarian theology from the Bible, not from the shack. Okay? Equal in essence, different in role. Now, what Paul is saying in verse 3 is that our God, who is Trinitarian, has woven authority and submission into every part of the universe. It is all over the place. If you're a person or you know a person who struggles with authority, they're going to have authority everywhere they go. It's woven all throughout the universe. The only person not under authority in the universe is the Father. I'm under authority in this church. You need to know that. I presented this sermon to our elders this morning, and they said you need to modify this and cut that out and change it. I'm under authority. It's woven throughout the universe. And so Paul writes, the head of every man is Christ. Everyone is under Christ's authority. You say Christians? Yeah, everyone. Christians and non-Christians. Every man is subject to Christ. He is the Lord. That's what master. And one day it's going to be apparent when every knee bows to Jesus Christ. So every man is subject to Christ. That's not fleshing itself out necessarily in reality right now, but in the kingdom age it will when the King Jesus, the King Jesus comes and exerts his influence and his rule and reign. Then it says the head of a wife is her husband. The head of a wife is her husband. So there is this principle of authority and submission in marriage put there by God's design. You say, does that mean women are inferior to men? No, just as Jesus is not inferior to the Father. Equal, same in essence, but functional subordination in the marriage relationship according to the design of God. Wives are called to yield to the headship of their husbands just as Jesus yielded to the headship of his father even though he was equal to him. Nod your head if that makes sense. Four people nodded their head. Okay, I'm going to keep going. Ladies, wives, your submission to your husbands no more makes you inferior to him than Jesus was inferior to his father by submitting to him. 
Does that make more sense? Remember, our model is the Trinity. Equal in essence, but there is authority and submission. That's God's design. Maybe you've been taught that authority and submission are bad things, evil things. But the Bible says they're actually good things that have gotten abused a lot. God himself designed authority and submission into marriage as a means of reflecting his own image in the marriage relationship because there's authority and submission in the Holy Trinity. And marriage is to picture that. But sin comes along and wrecks things, doesn't it? When a husband abuses his delegated authority from God, when he misuses his authority in his relationship with his wife, he is misrepresenting God's design. He is defacing God's image in mankind. When a wife refuses to follow her husband's leadership, if she's married, or her father's leadership, if she's single, she's not just asserting herself and demonstrating her supposed independence. She is going against the design of God. Now, feminists and evangelical feminists will challenge the meaning of this word head. The head of a wife is her husband. And they'll say, Oh, that's the Greek word kephale, which it is. And they'll say, kephale has no authority in it. Problem is, that's not true. (laughs) The word, in almost every instance that it's used in secular literature at that time and in Paul's usage, had the connotation of authority, of being in charge, of being responsible. Read Ephesians 5, 22 and 23 and Colossians 2.10 and many other places. And we know this word head. When you get ticked off at a company and you want to get the answer, who do you go to? The head honcho. (laughs) I want to go to the head. I want to go to the top. I want to go to the guy who's in charge, who makes the decisions. It's a mistake and a misreading of Scripture, I believe, to drain all the authority out of this word head because it has authority in it as we've already seen. Paul basically is saying here that male authority and female submission are not cultural constructs, but were designed by our Creator to reflect His image and for our good. People have abused this authority, for sure, but the answer to that is not to just reject wholesale God's design and turn it on its head. The answer is repentance or deviating from it and faith to see Jesus Christ as our model, our supreme example of how it should be lived out. Because it says, Husbands, not only lead your wives, but what? Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave his life for it. Most women I know, most wives I know, would gladly submit to a husband who is laying down his life for her. It's a beautiful synergy when it's working together the way God intended it. So this is the New Testament view of authority and submission in marriage. Husbands are to be Jesus to their wives. Love your wives as Christ loved the church. Husbands are to be Jesus to their wives. Lead their wives with humility and love and gentleness as Jesus would. Sacrificial love. Recognizing that they too as husbands are under authority. Head of every man is Christ. I'm not ultimate final authority in my home. I'm under authority. Husbands are to be Jesus to their wives, and wives are to be like Jesus in respecting the authority that God has placed over them. Maintaining that attitude of submission, just like Jesus maintained his attitude of submission to the Father. Do you see how this is all tied back to theology and what we believe about God? Both are to be like Jesus. That's God's design. The model for harmonious, godly relationships is the Trinity. That's the first principle here. Everything else Paul is going to say is going to flow from that. Now it starts to get interesting. Verse 4, Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head since it's the same as if her head was shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short, cut it all off. But since it's a disgraceful thing for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. 
the interpretive challenge here is to discern what is cultural for that culture in Corinth in the first century and what is transcultural and applies to all of us. And people who take God's word seriously have spent lots of time trying to discern that and figure it out. Here's the second principle that I believe Paul is communicating. To reject cultural customs that signify gender distinction is a dishonorable thing. Now, we need some background for what was going on back then. Apparently, in Corinth, the city of Corinth at the time, a feminist movement was brewing and gaining steam. Some women, like in our day, had grown weary of being treated poorly by their husbands, some who had been dominated and abused and such, were sick of it, and they were becoming feminists. And they started to let their views be known by changing how they presented themselves in public. They wanted people to know, even the people in their church, that their view was changing from what we've described to something different. Some of these women asserted their independence from their husbands by making a visual statement. They threw off their head covering. Now, in that culture, most women, respectable, honorable women, would wear a head covering on their head. We don't know exactly what it was. Some kind of a a veil, perhaps, some kind of a shawl that would cover their head. All the women did it, except for certain kinds of women who did not want to be known as submissive to their husbands. And so these new Corinthian feminists were throwing off their head coverings, saying, we we don't want to be in submission to our husbands anymore. And not only that, they were letting down their hair. Now, again, most people, most women, reputable, honorable women in that culture would pile their hair up on their heads and wear it in a bun, and then that head covering would kind of hold it all in place up there. But these women were saying, enough of that. We don't like men. We don't like how our husbands are treating us. Throwing away their head coverings, tossing it, letting their hair down, which in that day was basically what a whore would do. Now, loose, flirtatious, dishonorable women were saying, we've had enough of this. In our culture, the equivalent might be a wife who takes off her wedding ring, starts wearing short, tight skirts and tight, low-cut tops as if to say to the people around her, I am loose, I am flirtatious, I want attention from men, I am available, I like to flirt, check me out, I'm not tied down, basically dressing and presenting themselves like a prostitute. That would be our modern-day cultural equivalent. So that's what some women were doing, the Corinthian feminists. Other women were going further than that, and they decided that the problem was not just male oppression, but the very nature of womanhood itself. They began to resent the fact that they were women. And so they launched a protest against gender distinction, and the subordinate role that came with that in womanhood, and these radical feminists began to shave their heads. And they started to dress to look like men, cross-dressers. In essence, what they were saying was, we reject being feminine, we reject being all girly and everything. We want to be in charge like men and rule like men, and so I'm throwing off all the repressive constraints of my culture's confinement. And, of course, some were going all the way and basically becoming lesbians. And that had even made its way into the church. So there was an evangelical feminist movement in Corinth. And so Paul is writing them, and he's saying this. Look, just because you are now in Christ does not mean that all of the God-ordained gender distinctions are negated. It does not mean that the cultural customs that you've been participating in are not important any longer. They're still important. That's what he's saying. When you gather for worship, when you come together like we are tonight and you're ministering to each other and to the Lord, honor the authority over you by maintaining proper attitudes and appearances. Women should look like women, distinct from men. If there are cultural customs like wearing a head covering that demonstrate that, then wear a head covering. That's what he's saying. Don't reject those customs just because you're now saved, just because you're now Christians. Those customs still matter because of what they represent. Now, customs change from culture to culture and age to age, don't they? 
Paul's saying in that culture, ladies, if you want to portray yourself as being respectable, honorable, and under authority, wear your head covering and wear it in church. That's what he was saying to those ladies. Then it gets even more interesting. Verse 7. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he's the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. What's that hearkening back to? Genesis. Going back to the creation account and the creation order. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head, because of the angels, which is a very mysterious phrase. Third principle. Gender distinction and roles are not rooted in culture, but in creation. Some people then and now are saying, it's all cultural conditioning. We shouldn't call people men and women. That's, that's sexist. That's cultural. It's culture that has foisted that upon our little boys and girls. We're actually all the same. And Paul is saying, no, we're actually not all the same. God created male and female, and he wants those distinctions to be apparent, to be shown, and to be known. Now, lost my place here. Distinctions in gender, including roles of authority and submission, are actually rooted in creation and the creation order, not culture. Now, culture corrupts it for sure and has for two millennia. Sin entered the world and tainted everything, but God's original design was very good, and it included male leadership and female partnership through submission. Man was created first, Paul says. Then God made woman out of man from his side to help him. Paul would say, God never does anything without a purpose. The creation order meant to signify something. But women say, but men are, are, are idiots. And some men are. Some men are harsh, angry, abusive. Some men hurt the women that they should be laying their lives down for. That's sin. But again, the answer is not to overthrow the entire creation order. It's to repent and believe the gospel and cooperate with God's transforming work in our lives so that what he originally intended is restored and then pictures his image to those who are watching. Three intriguing things in this section that I'm going to attempt to address very quickly. First, it says, man is the glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. What is that all about? Well, here's what John MacArthur says. Woman was made to manifest man's authority and will as man was made to manifest God's authority and will. The woman is a vice-regent who rules in the stead of man or who carries out man's will, just as man is God's vice-regent who rules in his stead and carries out his will. The point is that man shows how magnificent a creature God can create from himself, while woman shows how magnificent a creature God can make from man. Genesis 2. Yet as far as saving and sanctifying grace is concerned, a woman comes as deeply into communion with God as a man. She was made equally in the image of God, and that image is equally restored through faith in Jesus Christ. She will be as much like Jesus as any man when we see our Lord face to face. It says a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head. And you say, so am I supposed to do that here in 2010? I'm a woman, I'm a wife, am I supposed to come to church with a hat or with a shawl or with a veil or something over my head to demonstrate observably my submission to my husband? I believe that because it was customary in that culture that all respectable women wore head coverings on their head, that Paul was requiring all of those Christian women who wanted to demonstrate their submission to maintain that custom, to wear the head covering and not reject it. I don't know that we have a cultural equivalent in our day to demonstrate observably submission. I don't know that that exists in our culture. And then it says, and they're to do this because of the angels. What does that mean? I'm telling you, nobody knows what it means. Every commentary I read has a different view. My best stab is this. To reject the authority that God has placed over your life. Do you remember the series this summer called The Umbrella? 
that we're all under authority. God's placed it over us for our good. To reject that authority makes you like the angels who cast off God's authority and joined Satan's rebellion and became what? Demons. My best interpretation of this is is he's saying when you reject authority, when you don't want to be under authority, you are demonic, which is what 1 Samuel 15, 23 says when it says rebellion is like the sin of witchcraft. 1 Samuel 15, 23. It's always best to remain under authority and to signify that by your attitude and your appearance. Now, some men might have interpreted what Paul has, been, has said so far as a license to treat women as inferior, to treat them harsh, to mistreat or abuse them, to order them around like slaves. Hey, men were created first. Women were created after. Women were created for men. So we can treat women however we want. And Paul wants to nip that in the bud. And so verse 11. Nevertheless, guys, in the Lord... As Christians, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. Fourth principle, men and women need each other. Men and women need each other, and both need God. Again, Paul goes back to creation, and he reminds men, yes, the first woman, Eve, was made from man and for man to be his helper. But remember, ever since then... Every man has come from a woman. How many of you men in here have moms? All of you do. (laughs) And your mom was a woman. And so Paul is is balancing this out, and it tells us that men and women are not independent of each other, but rather we need each other. We are interdependent, not independent. So men should not get all high and mighty about their leadership role to the point where they feel like they don't need their wives. You do need her. I need my wife. Husbands, you need your wife. Trust me. You need her. Trust Paul. Trust God. Trust his word. And then a fifth and final principle. Gender distinction is God's idea. Men should appear masculine and women should appear feminine. You say, where do you get that? Verse 13, judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered, looking like a prostitute, looking like a loose, rebellious woman? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? You wondered where that was in the Bible, didn't you? There it is. But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory for her hair is given to her for a covering. Okay, let me say it this way. God is not a fan of the unisex movement. God is not a fan of cross-dressing or sex change operations that swap out internal plumbing. God does not approve of men dressing in drag or women disgusted with womanhood shaving their heads and trying to look like men. He's not in favor of anything that blurs the lines of distinction between men and women that he created male and female in dress and in appearance. He wants men to look masculine. He wants women to look feminine, whatever that means in each culture. Remember, men used to wear dresses back in the day. So this has some cultural confinements and implications to it. So in our culture, men, let me just give you some suggestions keep any of us from being mistaken as women number one grow a beard if you can yeah if you have got a big old bushy beard no one's going to mistake you for being a woman most likely i love some of the beards i'm seeing appear around here these days if you can you know if it's going to be all blotchy and everything then then don't do it but second if you must wear a kilt be at least 250 pounds and grow a beard and you will not be mistaken for a woman. Third, if you must wear pink, do it for the cause of breast cancer awareness. But if your closet is full of pink, that's just not healthy. Ladies, ladies, we're equal opportunity offenders here. So to maintain your feminine appearance, 
from your pastor. Let me say a few things to you. Number one, cursing and swearing does not make you more feminine. Number two, ditto for hairy armpits and hairy legs. Number three, regarding makeup, wearing makeup, as my former pastor used to say, if the barn needs painting, paint it. Number four, moderation in all things applies to makeup. If you look like a wax museum figure, we're going to be wondering what you're trying to hide under all that. And number five, if you feel moved by the Holy Spirit to start wearing a head covering or a hat to church to signify your submissive attitude towards your husband, go for it. We will respect and honor that. Absolutely. Bottom line is this. God created our ancestors male and female, and he wants men to look masculine and women to appear feminine, girly, not manly. We don't have to apologize for that. We were created that way. A pastoral word. I'm aware that statistics tell us that most people who struggle with gender confusion issues, most statistics say, do so because there's something in their past, usually abuse of some kind, that has played itself out in their life this way. And my encouragement to you would be to find a biblical counselor who can come alongside you and surface those things from the past and begin with a biblical worldview to address the things that happened to you, the sins that were committed against you. That's what I would recommend. And address them in the light of truth and love. Now, you notice that Paul talks about hair length here. And that's been the subject of a lot of discussion and controversy and conjecture for centuries. He says, long hair on men is disgraceful. Long hair on women is glorious. Earlier he said that a woman who appears in public with a shaved head is disgraceful. And so people throughout time who really do want to please God have asked, how long is too long for men and how short is too short for women? And there's no definitive answer here because it's culturally based. Keep in mind Paul's main point, which is to keep the genders distinguishable, distinct. And so if you wear your hair in such a way that people cannot tell if you're a man or a woman, you need to do something about that. That's what he's speaking about. Guys, if we can't tell what gender you are because of the length of your hair, you might want to consider shortening it up a little bit. Ladies, if... Your hair is so short that guys are routinely recruiting you to play tackle on their football team. You might want to consider growing it out a little bit. Keep the distinctions between genders. That's the biblical principle. And then finally, in verse 16, he says this, If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice or literally no other practice, nor do the churches of God. Do you think anybody wants to be contentious about gender issues? I would say so. Some of you may want to be contentious with me right now. But I'm the messenger, okay? Don't shoot the messenger. Paul is saying, if you want to argue about this, here's what Paul is saying, I don't have anything else to give you. I've given it all to you. I don't have anything else. Maybe you were hoping to hear something else from the Lord, but I don't have anything else, and neither do any other of God's churches. Again, John MacArthur says the apostles and the other churches were firmly committed to the practice that women should wear longer hair than men and should have distinctively female hairdos and where custom dictated it, they should wear proper head coverings to distinguish themselves as being submissive. He said, that's all I got. So if you want to argue about it, go argue with the tree, you know, because God has spoken and that's Paul saying that's what I'm passing on to you. Let me see if I can summarize. Men, don't be passive. Don't be cowardly. Lead. Take responsibility. Lead lovingly from a position of being under an umbrella yourself, under Christ's authority. Women, embrace your equality with men in reflecting the image of God. You reflect God's image equally as a man or as your husband. Joyfully, voluntarily submit to your husband's leadership if you're married or your dad's leadership if you're not married 
trusting God to work through your authorities, and all of you maintain the gender distinctions that God ordained in your presenting of yourself to others. Portray yourself, men, as masculine and women as feminine because that's the way God ordained it and that's the way Jesus modeled it. And by the way, you say, well, Jesus was kind of effeminate and had long hair. You believe that just because Raphael painted him that way in the 1400s? Raphael didn't have a snapshot of Jesus. Jesus was a construction worker, a carpenter. He had calloused hands. He was a masculine guy. And I do not for a moment believe he had hair down to his, you know, down his back. We made it. We did it. Minute and a half to hone in on us. Closed circuit for New Life Church. Number one, learn theology. Learn theology. It matters. Tozer said, what, you, what comes to your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. Learn theology. Take a class. Take one of our discovery classes that Pastor Claude mentioned. Take New Testament survey in Soma coming up. That's next up in Soma. Learn theology. Second, learn to see how the gospel affects all of life. You see, the Bible says that in the gospel, Jesus became obedient unto death, even death on a cross. Who was he obedient to? Who was he obedient to? The Father. It was the Father's will that he be crushed. Not my will, but yours be done. I'll go through with it, Lord. The gospel shows us how to live our lives under authority because that's how Jesus lived. And third, it's a Bible word I'm going to give to you again, repent. We probably all need to repent after what we've heard tonight. Repent of the ways that you have messed with God's design. And I will too. Strong-headed, conniving, stubbornly rebellious wives who will not follow your husband's leadership, you need to repent. Passive, timid husbands who won't take responsibility to lead your wife and protect your family and lay down your life for them, you need to repent. Teenagers who are constantly bucking your parents' authority, always challenging, going behind their back, pitting your parents against each other, disrespecting them, you need to repent. We all need to repent. And so, Lord, have mercy on us and show us where we still fall short of your glory. Cleanse us, change us, and give us your grace to live out your design for your men and your women. We pray this in Christ's name.